Last week, Bill used the metaphor that we are paddling our way through the Gospel of Luke this summer, as well as this fall, and I like that uh, symbolism. Uh, it could also be said that we are uh, wading our way through it, or even if we might be swimming our way through it downstream, or even if we're against the current, we might just be uh, treading water. This morning is a treading water kind of passage. It comes to us from the Gospel of Luke in the 12th chapter. Uh, I tell you what, it, it's, it's summertime, it's vacation time, it's time for rest and recreation, and those lectionary people had to throw this passage right into the midst of it on this first weekend in August, uh, as if to hit up upside the head with a two-by-four, which in fact it does. Hear now the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do now? For I have no place to store my crops. So then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes Jesus uses nuanced and subtle language to make his point as if, as he says, let those who have ears hear, the kingdom of God is like a seed buried in a field, he said. The kingdom of God is like a man who had two sons. The kingdom of God is like a man who went out to sow. But at other times, Jesus, depending on the circumstances, is about as subtle as a sledgehammer, pounding us with the truth that is impossible to head or dodge, no matter how good your preacher is. Today is one text like that. It's called the parable of the rich fool, and it hits us in the head with the part of the human condition known as greed, and tells us what will be the end result. <clears throat> Now, when we hear, us good Presbyterians, when we hear this parable, our first instinct is to compare ourselves <clears throat> uh, with whether or not we are rich. Excuse me. <clears throat> we may be willing to say we're foolish, but we're not particularly rich. But, you know, we are, relative to uh, the rest of the world's population, two million people excuse me, billion, that's B, billion people who live on less than 
a dollar or day, we all of us are rich. Do we hoard? Are we greedy and selfish and foolish like the man in the parable? I suspect if we are really honest, we, me included, fit that part too. Don't feel singled out. It's been true since the beginning of humanity. It was a problem in Jesus' day, in the day of the church, when Luke wrote this passage, and in our day now. It seems to be a pattern here. The story begins where too many families end, fighting over a will. Jesus is talking to the disciples, but there are so many people around him, they're stepping all over each other, and a man steps up, pushes his way in front, and asks Jesus to arbitrate between himself and his brother. Tell my brother to divide my inheritance, he asks. Well, the law was clear in Deuteronomy that the eldest brother was both the executor and the one who would inherit two-thirds of the estate. The rest of the brothers would split it out. Apparently, this was not the elder brother, but this one had a grievance against the elder brother who wasn't being fair. Fighting over one's inheritance has a long history. If you have a chance to talk to a wills and estates attorney, just ask him about some of the stories a family dysfunction that he deals with every day. One attorney friend of mine in Atlanta tells the story of a man that he represented who wanted to leave some of his estate to some charities. Some of it. When his daughters caught wind, they then hired their own attorney to get their father uh, declared incompetent, which he wasn't. That went to court. Afterwards, he won his case, and he, of course, changed his will to leave all or most of the money to those charities and a little bit to his daughters, so that that would appease the court in some way. And then when he died, of course, they contested the will and spent years paying lawyer's fees, diminishing the estate greatly through legal fees. He said this is just one of many cases weekly that he deals with. Not all, but most of the fights over wills are about greed. Either a greedy need for money, or as they say, money is never about money. A greedy need for a symbolic way to get something after a loved one has died that they did not get when that loved one lived. A sense of attention or affection, something symbolic. Now, Jesus, being Jesus, was not a fool, and he did not bite at the man's request. He knew it was one story against another, and the village elders and priests would eventually work it out. It wasn't his job to do so. Instead, he took this moment as a way to share a parable, a story, about greed, selfishness, and the underlying lack of faith that feeds them both. Now it says he's talking to his disciples, but of course he's talking to all those who had surrounded him, which means he's talking to us. The man's question to Jesus was the perfect entree to speak on the issue of greed and generosity. Jesus starts off in the imperative. There's no stronger tense in Greek. Be very careful. 
exclamation point. Be on guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Oh, I know you say that's easy for him to say he didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't even have but one tunic to wear. He didn't have two storage units and a garage unit full of stuff. If freedom's just another way of nothing left to lose, Jesus had nothing left to lose. What did he have to deal with anyway? Sarcastic as it sounds. The fact is that every Christian I know wrestles with their sense of possessions. This possession thing, and most of us, especially the wealthier we are, wrestle with how much is enough to give away and how much is enough to keep. We add up our net worth of equities and real estate and jewelry and antiques and art and some other form of wealth like now our ideas, which have just this last week been included in our gross national product. We calculated and then decided how much we can afford to give away. It's the way we normally do it. And all of us who are Christians and those who are not but have at least a modicum of social conscience struggle over this conflict. In terms of charitable giving worldwide by country, there are some surprises that you might be interested in. Adding up the average of how many people give money away to charities, how many people actually give their time away to charities, and how many people have done something for a stranger in the last three months. If you add up all of those, you come up with an average percentage of countries, and in the mid-50 range would be Ireland, Canada, United States, Netherlands, Great Britain, which means 45% have not done any of those three. That's a little bit of a surprise. Then it drops some. Germany and Mexico, 44%, 32% respectively. Then France at 27%. That means 73% have not done any of those three things. Then Egypt, 26. Iraq, 25. Venezuela, 24. Japan, 22%. Turkey, 19. Russia, 18. China, 14. And Pakistan, 14. Now, if you're not already deadened by these statistics, let me share a few of our particular national statistics. 88% of households give to charity, that doesn't mean they give time or help a stranger, but 88% give to charity. And the average household contribution is 2,213, while the mean is 870. Americans gave 298 billion in 2011, which reflects an almost 4% increase since 2010. Charitable giving accounted for 2% of our gross national product in 2010. And by the year 2055, some $41 trillion will change hands as Americans pass on their accumulated assets to the next generation. That is, that we have stored up $41 trillion at our deaths. Now, from my unprofessional perspective, it looks like those countries with more free economies and also who are free from religious influence have the highest charitable giving rate. There are exceptions like Japan, 
who was down on the bottom 22%, a fairly free economy and little religious influence. But Pliny played this out. France, Russia, Venezuela, China, on some point of the continuum, more socialist, down in the low percentile. And there are those countries with religious rule built into the law for charitable giving, who are ironically near the bottom, like Turkey, Iraq, and Pakistan. Now, it may be that those countries with the highest charity rates are the wealthiest, but it may also be that they are the wealthiest because their freedoms make wealth easier to grow. Whatever, in a perfect world, those with wealth should give more of it away, not just to their kinfolk or their alma mater, but for the sake of the common good. I think Jesus says that all the time. That's what this parable is saying. The farmer was already wealthy. He was a landowner, which is to say in those days, not just a plot of land, but territory. He had territory. He was a mega farmer. And he had already done so well that all of his barns were filled to the brim with grain. But then he has a bumper crop. It's, it's a bumper year. And so he doesn't know what to do, so he decides, you know, I think I'll just tear down the present barns and build bigger ones so I can score all my, craps in, my crops in them, and then I will have enough for the rest of my life and I can eat, that was Freudian, of course, eat, drink, and be merry. If you listen to the words he uses, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build large ones in there. I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Either he was so nasty about his riches that he didn't have anybody else to talk to, or the example Jesus uses shows us how me, myself, and I oriented he is using 11 cases of first person in this little talk he has. Apparently he never learned in kindergarten the first rule, that is to share your toys. It's greed, Jesus says, or if you like a more digestible term, avarice. And, as hard as it is to hear, we've all got it in us. When I was in college, there are many examples. Barely enough to rub two dollars together, my friends and I would once a week try to go to one of those western uh, uh, restaurants where they would have all-you-can-eat bars for 11 bucks. Back then I remember walking in already anxious that I wasn't going to get enough, and I would pile my plate six inches high, and I would sit there eating it as fast as I could for fear that there wouldn't be any left when I got back for seconds. What's that about? Compulsion to hoard goes with being human, I'm afraid. It's part of our lower nature that's not so good. Even animals don't hoard, I'm told. They have learned that meat rocks after a few days, so they only kill enough that they can eat at the time, except for squirrels and bears who squirrel away enough to get through the winter, which is not hoarding, it is called saving or good stewardship. Jesus is not talking about saving or good stewardship here, he's talking about greed. Besides, there's a passage in Genesis when Joseph, you remember Joseph, has a dream, 
And the dream is that Egypt will have seven years of good harvest and then seven years of drought. So he goes to the uh, Pharaoh and tells him we need to build storage bins to save up for the seven years of drought that will be coming. And he does exactly that. And the point of it is that, as Joseph knew, we need to save up for the common good. Not, in this case, for my own particular good. Why is it that only human hoard? Jesus says, I think that it comes down from feeling that we are not rich toward God. It is a spiritual problem, a relational problem, which is all that sin is. We are apparently not in the right place with God. It stems from anxiety and fear that we are in this world alone and that it is all up to us. We forget who we are child of God, thereby connected to others who are also children of God. We are God's, and God is the one who gives all things in the end. We forget that. This God who's giving no giving knows no ending, as our hymn went. That's why we give thanks at meals, why we give thanks in all things to God, because it then begs the question, why do I have this and what am I supposed to do with it? What does God want me to do with it? The cross. Does it come down to eat, drink, and be merry? If so, we're simply lost in the dark valley of our own narcissism. This is the root of greed and what Jesus cautions us against. And in the end, he says it leads to a poverty of life. Not life at all, but a poverty of life. There's no life in it. And if Jesus' life is the example, real life comes from giving rather than hoarding. This man was a fool, Jesus said, because he thought he would live forever, forgetting that one day he would have to leave it behind. Therefore, the one with the most toys does not win, but instead leaves the biggest mess for the lawyers and the family to clean up. Now, I could probably end there, and probably should, and I'm sure you'll tell me that when this sermon is over, but I've heard this parable preached, by the way, as an admonition against capitalism and supporting socialism. But I think that's a complete fabrication Capitalism and socialism did not exist in Jesus' day. It was basically an agrarian society, and the temple was clear. You give 10% of everything you have to the temple, and then it will distribute it to the poor. They were also highly taxed by Roman occupation. And the issue in those days was it was a finite economy. It was a zero-sum game. The more you had, the less someone else had. That's true now on some level, but it is not a completely zero-sum game. And it would especially be true that the more you had, the less those in your village had. Some of that, as I said, is still true. I'm not making excuses for the obscenely high executive salaries compared to laborers and workers in our world. There are way too many people getting rich on the backs of the poor. But it is true that in a healthy economic system. Wealth increases across the board, okay, unjustly for the rich compared to the poor, but it's not a zero-sum game. 
case can be made, I think, that Jesus even accepted enlightened self-interest as part of the reality of economics, that which we claim is at the root of capitalism. There are many people in wealthy uh, in Jesus' day who had money, who were not particularly judged by their wealth, unless they were ungenerous and ungracious. For basically the rule was, if you for some reason are wealthy, then you have the great opportunity to use that wealth for the sake of others. And it can be summed up in, to whom much is given, much is required. Be good stewards. A famous pastor I know in Atlanta met with a famous land developer in Atlanta over lunch many years ago and said to him, you know, you have been incredibly successful over the last 40 years of your business, and I challenge you as a Christian to spend as much energy and time giving the money you have made away as you have spent making it. And that man heard that, and in fact has. Ever since, he has. And I think that is the same challenge that without being too simplistic, that Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have heard as well. This man in Jesus' parable had no desire to do that. He wanted only to use his wealth for the glory of himself, not to God. And besides that, it doesn't say that, and I'm just interpreting this. It's just bad capitalism. Hoarding his grain would only lead it to spoil instead of using it to seed more capital or to feed more people who could work more productively. Plus, the greedy man simply wanted to hoard enough so that he could quit producing. Apparently, greed leads to sloth. And finally, he wasn't a very good accountant. In the end, when the accounting was due, God being the one who looks at our balance sheets, he was declared bankrupt. The fact is, there is a difference between self-interest and greed. You all remember the Gordon Greco character in the movie Wall Street who gets up and says, greed is good, which apparently is supposedly based on the character uh, Ivan Vosky in the mid-80s. Greed, by definition, is an excessive desire to acquire or possess a craving or an addiction. Self-interest is something else. It's what drives economic growth, as Adam Smith wrote in his great book, The Wealth of Nations. Apparently that book, which has served as the foundation upon which our own economies have been built, uh, was an understanding of the laissez-faire system, the influence of the invisible hand to shape economies for the greater good and the free enterprise, well, quasi-free enterprise, system that our own process is built on. Hang with me. Adam Smith did not believe in totally free enterprise or in complete self-interest, apparently. He always said it should be done moderately, as any good Scotsman would say, and that it should be guided by a higher moral virtuous framework he called sympathy or compassion for others. For instance, he said, when the happiness or misery of others depends in any respect upon our conduct, we dare not, as self-love might suggest to us, 
prefer the interest of one, that is me, to the many, that is we. Smith warned of the collusive nature of business interest prophetically, which may form cabals or monopolies fixing the highest price, quote, which can be squeezed out of the buyers. And he warned that a business-dominated political system would allow a conspiracy of businesses and industry against consumers, with the former scheming to influence politics and legislation. He states that the interest of manufacturers and merchants in any particular branch of trade or manufacturing is always in some respects different from even the opposite of that of the public. And then he goes on to say that the proposal of any new law or regulation or commerce which comes from this order of manufacturing and, uh, and the mercantile order ought always to be listened to with great precaution and ought never to be adopted till after having been long and carefully examined, not only with the most scrupulous but with the most suspicious attention. Surprise! He was not even against taxes nor government regulations, saying the subject of every state ought to contribute towards the support of the government as nearly as possible in proportion to their respective abilities, that is, in proportion to the revenue which they respectively enjoy under the protection of the state. I guess how you define what their responsibility would be is what decides whether you are liberal or conservative. So it is that when capitalism is lifted up, as Churchill said of democracy, it is, of course, the worst of all economic systems, except for everyone else. He didn't say that, I did. Based on the human condition, it is the best we have to work with. And as Christians, we are called to be as productive as we can be with what we have to work with as long as we do it fairly, justly, legally, and morally. Then we are called to use what we produce for the good of others, to give it away as God in Jesus Christ did. Pretty simple. Rich toward God means generosity, not greed. It means our sense of abundance, not scarcity. And by the way, this also works for the institution of the church. How many times have I heard Preachers and pastors get up and say, okay, everybody, ante up. Don't be the rich fool in this parable and ante up to the church so that the church can continue to grow its coffers and to buy more land and to stick more of it away in the endowment. But I got to tell you, if it works for us individually, it works for the church institutionally too. Real stewardship drives the opportunity for us to use our wealth and time and talents for the common good, not so that the church can continue to grow in its wealth, but to use generously our land and program and building and endowment to care for those in need. It's mission. And the question is, does mission drive our giving, or does giving drive our mission? The issue comes down to this. We are all of us rich by the world's standards. The question we will have to answer in the end at that great accounting place in heaven is whether we are fools too.
Maybe this is why Jesus doesn't hold back. You fool, he says, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, who will be they then? So it is with those who store up themselves treasures on earth, but are not rich toward God. If we get hit on the head with a sledgehammer, I suggest that we take notes. In Christ's name, amen.